if you'll open your Bibles this, this morning, this evening. It's been a long day. The daughter's stuck in an airport last night. I think it's evening. Pastor gave instructions for what Grace is allowed to do, but that's not for anybody else tonight. It's just for her. I'm glad to have her back. And uh, it's funny when I get a chance to preach what my kids and wife will tell me before I get up here. My son didn't know I was preaching tonight. My daughter said, do good, Dad. And then my wife said, keep it short. So you never know. So I've been studying a little bit from the early church and from the perspective of some of its most influential leaders. And I've been asking myself uh, this one question. If they were to show up in our church today, you know, what would they say? You know, would they be surprised? You know, would they be disgusted maybe? Would they be confused Uh, maybe frustrated, or maybe they'd be joyful or encouraged. What kind of advice or counsel, you know, would they give to us? You know, do they value the same things that that we value? Uh, Several decades ago in the early 2000s, the concept of uh, vintage Christianity was kind of floated around. And it was popularized in a book written around 2003. And vintage just means something, denoting something of high quality, especially something from the past or something that's characteristic of a person's best work. And so as I was thinking about that, that kind of created a problem in my mind because are we saying today's church is not of the same value um, or quality than the early church? Now, there are obvious differences from our church today, the church of today, and the church, early church. Um, And as much as I'd like to go back to the early church days, I'd maybe only like to go back for a brief day visit. Um, If I'd stayed any longer, I'd probably die. Um, Because if you read about the early church, if you read some of the things they went through, I don't think I'd have enough... um, backbone, enough vertebrae to stand up to some of the things that they faced. Um, But the word value is what I'd like us to focus on throughout this series that we're going to work through in the next, uh, well, the four four things that I have, the four nights that I have. And so I've been asking my question, um, what did the early church value that we also need to value? And so I grabbed a pen And I started reading through the book of Acts, and I started writing down what are the things that the early church valued. And I began writing them down and writing them down and writing them down, and I realized the list was a really, really long list, and I didn't even make it past chapter 5, and Acts says 28 chapters. And so this is not going to be a 44-part series. This has to be a four-part series. Um, And I know we're not going to do things exactly the same way the church did, culture has changed, methodologies have changed, but this principle of value, it's timeless across all the generations. And so uh, to me, what did they value? And as I began reading, I realized that what they valued, I needed to put in perspective of their most influential leaders. And so this is the way I uh, created the series. I've only got four messages And so I thought it best to view 
what the early church values from the eyes of four of its most influential leaders. And each one of those leaders provides us with a key or or a, a value, we might say, that the early church practiced that we need to still practice today. It has the idea that it's timeless, it doesn't change, it's universal. Um, and so tonight we're going to look at Peter. Next time I meet, we meet, we're going to look at Barnabas. And then I've got Stephen, and then I've got Paul. So we're going to look at the early church from the perspective of those four leaders and their four significance. So if the early church leaders today were allowed to show up and allowed to appear before us tonight, what's one piece of advice that they would give us? What is one? And the one piece of advice I think that if Peter were here tonight, if he were here in front of us, this is the piece of advice I think that he would give us. He would say that we need to daily rely on the Holy Spirit. I know it's kind of simple and it's kind of significant at the same time. So with the time that I have tonight, I just want to go through like five different instances events in the life of Peter that shows how he relied on the Holy Spirit in the early church here, his daily activities. Now, did you know that the Holy Spirit is actually the main character in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit shows up some 204, 205 times in all the New Testament. 85 of those times, it's in the book of Acts alone. All the Gospels combined, there's only 54 occurrences. So in the book of Acts... He's the most important. It's not the sheer volume that we're concerned about. It's his role. It's his ministry. And Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit was to be our helper. John chapter 15, verse 26, a classic passage, um, the same passage that Jesus would have told when he was uh, in the upper room with his disciples in John 15. It says, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father... And I like how the translation in the Greek says the term helper, as it's translated from the Greek language, it means one who appears in behalf of another, a mediator, an intercessor, but it says the last one, which is a helper. I mean, it just gets it down to the very basic, very basic part of what the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus defined the value of the Holy Spirit for us, and he defined its value with this simple word, being a helper, a helper. And and Peter is echoing the words of Jesus, telling us that we must rely on the Holy Spirit. So with our time, I want to look at a few passages in the book of Acts that it changed Peter's life because he daily relied on the Holy Spirit. So I want to look at the first one here in Acts chapter 2, and if they'll throw that slide up there, Peter preaches with great power. I want you to look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to get down to uh, verse 14. But Peter preaches with great power. Now, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, it's a great day for the life of the church. I mean, this is a fantastic day. It's the day where the church becomes established. Once the Holy Spirit comes down on Pentecost, as predicted earlier by Jesus, the church is going to grow exponentially. I mean, it grows in such a fast rate. And it's Peter who gives the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And the point of his message, he's trying to demonstrate the entire time that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the Messiah. But nobody 
seemed to realize that Jesus was the Messiah when Jesus was ministering on earth. Now, some believed, but that wasn't the norm. But now, through Peter's sermon, the Jewish people see the error of the ways. They're ripe for repentance. And these are Jewish people all around the region. As a result, 3,000, I I still, I think about that. 3,000 people are saved because of Peter's first sermon. 3,000 people. And then 3,000 people are baptized, which is even more hard to believe. I have trouble in VBS time baptizing 12 or 13 kids. I'm winded after that. I can't imagine 3,000 people. I'd need a crew. You know, we could alternate here, but 3,000 people. But this sermon would not have been possible without the Holy Spirit, and I think we realize this, empowering Peter. But the irony here, and what I want you to see, the irony here is that the crowd believed that the apostles were drunk with wine, when in reality they were filled with the Spirit. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third day of the hour. And then Peter goes on to say, this what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it's interesting, and I'm taking this little section out of this entire sermon of Peter. Okay, We're not going to talk about the entire message. We don't have that kind of time. I'm just taking this little verse out, this little section. You see, when the world sees how we are led along by the Spirit each day, when they know that we give God precedence in everything that we do, they too kind of think we're confused. They kind of think we're drunk, we might say. Confused because the only master that they serve is themselves. But we have a master that we serve and in a similar way, when we aren't giving the spirit control in our lives, confusion and frustration can also be the result. And when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's allowed, he's permitted to get up and to speak great things about God. And when you get a chance later on, you can read his sermon, a fantastic sermon. What he does, he gets up and he preaches this great powerful message, but just a little while earlier, a few months earlier, he was cowering in the dark, denouncing Jesus when Jesus was being tried by the religious leaders. But when people look at our lives and they see how we are so filled with the Holy Spirit and it literally leads us in everything they do, they kind of think in the same way that we're intoxicated, and we are. We're intoxicated, we might say, with the Spirit. We're allowing the Spirit to lead us and direct us and guide us in every step of the way. And when they look at that in our lives, they're confused because it looks so different. And here, these people have no idea what's going on. They have no idea what God's going to do in in the early church as it continues further for Peter. But it's simply because... Peter decides and says, I want to daily rely on the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an interesting case because Peter is able to get up and to preach this fantastic message. 
You know, the Bible also says that when we get into situations similar to Peter, not that we're going to preach to a crowd at Pentecost, but when we get into similar situations, when we're allowed to present the gospel to a crowd or maybe even to one or two people, that God is going to give us the words to say. The Holy Spirit is going to give us exactly the words to say as we present the gospel. So Peter preaches with great power. There's another thing that Peter does here, the second one. Peter prays for healing. You can throw it up to that next slide. Peter prays for healing. So when you daily rely on the Holy Spirit, Peter prays for healing. There's several passages here. You can see Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 9, and then another one. We're only, we're just going to talk about them all at once, okay? There's several passages here, and I wanted you to at least have them in your text. In Acts chapter 3, you can turn there. You're already in Acts chapter 2, so if you just turn over to Acts chapter 3. In this text, Peter and John are going to the temple, and a lame man here at the temple gate is asking for some money. And they respond saying that they can offer him something better, and that's called Jesus. And look what it says in Acts chapter 3, verses 4 and following. It says, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he, this man, gave him his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankles and bones received strength. So he leaped up and stood and walked and entered the temple with them, leaping, excuse me, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Peter is able to heal a lame man through the power of praying for him. Later on in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, the text tells us the people are dragging their sick into the streets so they can get close to Peter in hopes that maybe Peter would pray for their loved ones. Later on in Acts chapter 9, the text records back-to-back events that involve Peter. He heals another crippled man named Aeneas. And right after that, he's able to raise a widow back to life, Dorcas. But in all these, in all these miracle accounts, Peter's careful to note that he's not the one who did the healing. It was Jesus who did the healing. It was his prayer to Jesus, asking Jesus to use his healing power for these individuals that resulted in something that was miraculous. And his point in the larger narrative of Acts that Jesus is not dead, that he is still alive. Because if he were dead, then he wouldn't be able to raise the dead, let alone do the miracles. But he's not dead. And by the way, his miracle power then is just as potent as it is today. But the more relevant part that I want you to see from this text about Peter is that Peter did his work of praying for the sick and left the miracle working power to God. You know, God's still doing miracles today, but it it may not look like the biblical ones we read about in the text. And sometimes we have this um, tendency to think that it's only a miracle if it looks like something that happened in the Bible. And it's not the case. God's still doing miracles They may not look like the biblical ones. You might be familiar with the name of uh, Joni Erickson Tata. uh, And she has testified to praying to God for healing on many, many occasions. 
believing in faith that it would happen. But to this day, she still hasn't been physically healed. And her perspective is one of great faith. She says this. She says, quote, God may remove your suffering, and that will be great cause for praise. But if not, he will use it. He will use anything and everything that stands in the way of his fellowship with you. So let God mold you and make you, transform you from glory to glory. That's the deeper healing, she says. And then more recently, she's added this. I'm grateful for the grace of God, which enables me to keep smiling, not in spite of my disability, but because of it. And then she goes on to say, for the weaker I am, the harder I must lean on God. And you know, truly, when we think of miracles, I don't think we should be so narrow-minded in our focus, only on the physical ones. Sometimes I think we need to broaden our perspective, broaden our thinking of what Miracles can happen in the many different ways it can happen. So Peter left his work for praying for the sick. He left that up to God. But still, he's praying for God to do the work. He's praying for the Holy Spirit to do the work. You know, the more you pray, right, the more your relationship with God will grow. The more you understand his heart, the more transformation in your own life will occur. Prayer here is, is the heart of much of what happened in the early church. And, and that's a theme you can trace all the way through the book of Acts. And in trying to understand the entirety of the book of Acts, there are about 15 different themes that seem to run through the book of Acts. And scholars and authors, they've tried to assemble it into a theme, but it, sometimes it just seems impossible. But we know the main player of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. And when we daily rely on the Holy Spirit... He's able to do some fantastic things. And so Peter prays for healing, okay? And he did so in these cases. And God did great things in those cases. But the point of what Acts is also trying to teach us is that praying needs to happen every single day. It needs to happen all the time. It needs to happen consistently each and every day, even if the healing doesn't happen. Because sometimes God does a miracle and we don't even know it. It's nice when we find out about it later, right? Or when God reveals it later to us that he answered that request and that person was healed. But we have to believe in faith that he is going to answer those requests. So a third thought here, and I know I'm moving fast, but I've got more stuff to talk about. I had a list of like ten for Peter, but I kind of narrowed it down to five. Peter speaks boldly in the face of persecution. And this is a biggie. Peter, uh, he, he, he speaks boldly. In the face of persecution. Acts chapter 4. So the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 2 caused a lot of commotion. It caused some ruckus, we might say. The lame man had been in his current condition for 40 years. And so that begs the question, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. 40 years? So if Jesus was in the temple all the time, right? And he was. Well, why didn't Jesus heal him? Right? 40 years? Surely Jesus would have come into contact with the man. He's there at the temple every time they go begging for alms for money. Jesus would have come into contact with him. Remember, Jesus didn't physically heal every person he came into contact with while he walked on the earth. God has a perfect time for every event, and it would seem that the healing of the lame man was not for Jesus to do at that time in his life, but for Jesus to do through Peter. Because look at the reaction of what happens. These religious leaders, 
they kind of seem embarrassed by the healing of the lame man. Once again, making reference that Jesus is still alive. Remember, you tried to kill him, religious leaders. You tried to put him on a cross. You tried to crucify him. It didn't work because he's still alive. Miracles are still being done in his name. His power is still alive. The number of disciples begin to grow. The authorities try to control the situation. They just can't. They said, we got rid of the leader, and now his followers are causing us so much trouble. And so they do what they know best. They throw Peter and John in prison. And they throw them in prison, and they say, well, that's how we're going to handle it. And the next day, they question them. Authorities want to know, where does your power come from? Boy, they walked right into that, didn't they? You know, where does your power come from? And Peter was ready. Look what it says, Acts chapter 4 and verse 8. Peter was ready <laughs> to give an advice. I mean, he was just waiting, waiting for them to walk into that. It says verse, chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, there it is again, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done, to a helpless man, by what means he has been, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which the was rejected by the builders and which has become the chief cornerstone. And he goes again and says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter just, again, he's only able to do this because he is daily relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he speaks boldly in the face of persecution. These were likely the same religious leaders that put Jesus on a cross earlier, the same group. And he's able to speak boldly in front of their face because it says in that text in verse 8, fill with the Holy Spirit. And I like what he says. If we are being judged for doing a good deed, okay, judge us for doing a good deed. But let it be known that this deed was not done in our power and our strength. This deed was done in the name of Jesus. The one that you crucified, yeah, yeah, that's the one. The one, he's still alive today. And so he's able to boldly speak in front. And, and this reminds me uh, of what Jesus had promised in the face of persecution. Back in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, Jesus said this. You don't have to turn there and listen. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer, or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And friends, that's an exact thing that happened here. It's almost like a prophecy coming true of what happened here in Acts chapter 4. What a promise. You know, and today the Holy Spirit can do the same thing for us today. But the story isn't finished because you, you can't miss what happens to the rest of the church when they learn of Peter's example. Look at down at the end of this chapter in chapter 4 and look at verse 23. And being let go, the, the, the religious leaders realize they can't do anything, so they got to let them go. Okay? They can't obviously deny the miracle because the lame man for 40 years, everybody knows Joe, the lame man will call him for 40 years, right? He's been walking in the temple now. They can't deny the miracle. They've got to get rid of the apostles, so they get rid of them. Verse 23, and being let go, 
Peter and John, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and began praising God. Then look down at verse 29. Now, Lord, look on the threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and the signs and wonders that may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The church asks the Spirit, the church asks the Holy Spirit to give them the same boldness that was given to Peter and John. It's the recounting of their story that's infectious. It causes the rest of the church to say, whoa, they can do that. The Holy Spirit's given them that. We want some of that. Not in a weird, like, wishing way, but we want that on our own lives. We want to be able to do exactly what Peter and John did and testify boldly in the face of persecution. We want that. It stirs the hearts of others who want to be used in the same way. And when God does something great in your life, tell others about it. Share why we like to have videos of witnessing and and your great stories on the screen so others can learn from them, others can be stirred, others can be excited. It's, It's infectious. The way God works in your life might be a motivation for someone else to start trusting God, praying, witnessing more. By the way, boldness, another theme through the book of Acts. Peter and John are bold. Stephen is bold. We'll talk about Stephen. Philip is bold, Acts chapter 8. Paul is even more bold. The Holy Spirit gave them all the boldness they needed. And Peter, again, he spoke boldly on trial before these religious. He was no longer fearful because the Holy Spirit empowered him, giving him the exact words to say. And when you're put in situations, when I'm put in situations like that, where we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say if, we, if but we just simply ask him for, remember, for help. Jesus says the value of the Holy Spirit is that he is our helper. He is there all the time for us. Now, Acts chapter 10, number four. Peter is obedient to the Spirit's leading. This is a long one, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Peter is obedient to the Spirit's leading. Acts chapter 10. I think we can safely say that God sometimes leads us in unique ways. Usually, when I'm writing a sermon, I'm writing a sermon in my office um, or maybe at my house. But I wrote most of the sermon, interestingly enough, in Panera Bread. I don't know why specifically. Um, Sometimes a change of venue is helpful. Maybe it's the never-ending supply of coffee and pastries. Well, not pastries. You know, sometimes I've composed sermons in a secret spot I have in Barbersville Park. I'm not going to tell you where it's at. I don't want any surprise visitors. Now, wildlife is welcome anytime. Um, and if this sermon is really bad tonight, let me know. Then I won't write any sermons anymore from Panera Bread. <laughs> but my point is that listening to the Holy Spirit is vital. And sometimes we're not really certain if the Holy Spirit is actually speaking or if it's too many pastries or too much coffee, okay? In Acts 10, Peter receives a rather unusual vision from the Lord. So unusual, he's kind of bewildered. He's kind of confused. And he kind of begins to question its authenticity. Like, is this really from the Lord? 
And I think we've questioned those things before in our lives too. Is this the Holy Spirit talking or is this what I ate last night talking? And he sees this white sheet descend down from heaven and on this white sheet was unclean food on it and he was told to eat the food. However, Peter balks at the command and uh, because the food was unclean, the Lord would never tell me to eat something that's unclean. Three times, three times the command was given to eat, and he rejected the command all three times. And while he was kind of thinking about what happened, the text says the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, go with the three men I've just sent to your house. And sure enough, three men have just showed up at his house and says that Cornelius needs you in another region. And so Peter goes, and Peter arrives, and he begins to explain the gospel message to Cornelius and his household. And look at what the text says in chapter 10, verse 44. As Peter is presenting the message, as Peter is telling them about the gospel, he can't even finish, okay? He can't even finish making his gospel presentation before a response comes. Look at chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And of those circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now, if you're Peter, you're probably thinking, now this, this feels like deja vu here. Because remember, Peter was the one on Pentecost. He was the one who witnessed the Pentecost event. He was part of the Pentecost event. The gospel message then was directed to the Jewish people. Now the Gentiles are also receiving the gospel message. And they're receiving the Holy Spirit, the same one that Peter received. Now, Peter's pretty smart here. He's thinking, now wait a minute. Last time this happened at Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. And I said, you guys need to be baptized. But what happens here? More saved. And Peter says, hey, you need to be baptized too. Look at what it says. Uh, verse um, 47, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then he asked them to stay for a few days. By the way, this is not part of it, but did you notice the order in the text? The Holy Spirit indwells the believer first, and then baptism takes place. Water baptism demonstrates what's already taken place inside the heart, okay? But the implication of Peter following, that was free. The implication of Peter following the leading of the Spirit is significant here to the rest of the book because now the gospel is going to go out to all the rest of the nations. Paul might be called the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was Peter who first made that bridge possible because he listened to the Spirit. And so the point is, don't underestimate the leading of your Spirit the leading of the Spirit in your own life, it might not look or feel super significant, but God might just be using it for something great that you might not realize. God had to poke Peter three times, Peter, (laughs) to show him the importance of this vision. And sometimes, you know, the Holy Spirit does the same for us. It might be a warning sign to stop doing something, right? that demonstrates the Spirit's concern for protecting us from behavior that might get out of control. It might be a person you see frequently. You might chalk it up as a coincidence, but the Spirit might be telling you you need to talk to them. You know, even later in Peter's own life, in Acts chapter 12, 
when Peter's imprisoned and God sends an angel to break Peter out of prison, what's the angel have to do? He's got to poke him to get his attention. <laughs> Same thing again, right? He's got to poke him to get his attention. The angel says, all right, time to get dressed. Peter's like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Let me get dressed. Follow me as I lead you out of prison, the angel says. You know, if this isn't parallel to what the Spirit does in our own lives, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like he has to lead us slowly around like a child. And all children, because we've all been them before, right? We don't want to obey. We want to do it our own way. I mean, no wonder the Bible calls us sheep. We constantly, constantly need help. And so the more, the more you listen to the Holy Spirit, the easier it's going to discern. You're going to discern his voice when he speaks to you. He may not be brazenly poking you, but we all need to be more in tune and, and, and more sensitive to the divine appointments and interruptions that the Spirit might bring along. All right, then the last one, and I'm, and I'm done. Peter's testimony provides clarity to the church. Now, this is big. Peter's testimony provides clarity to the church. Acts chapter 15, you can turn there. We'll look at verse 6. In the narrative of Acts, this is the last time we meet Peter in Acts chapter 15. I feel like he goes out on a high note here. And he's teaching, the teaching that salvation is both for Jews and Gentiles has reached a tipping point in the life of the early church. And so they have to have a big church council called the Jerusalem Council to decide on the issue, okay? And all the big names are there. Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas, all the rest of the apostles likely, okay? All of them are there. And they're asking questions. Look at what it says, chapter 15, Verse 6. It says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. And when they had, there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God knows the heart, acknowledged them by the giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Referencing the Pentecost event. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, the importance of this event, that it's Peter's testimony that tips the scale for the inclusion of the Gentiles, okay? Peter alludes to the incident in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. He says, I was eyewitness to the fact that the gospel is given to the Gentiles because I saw the Spirit descend on those Gentiles. And he asked the council rhetorically, he says, do you want to test God's ways? Do you want to put a yoke on God's movement through the disciples? Do you really want to do that? Do you want to restrict God's ways? And so Peter makes a profession here in verse 11, almost a confession of faith. And look at what he says in verse 11. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I mean, what a testimony here. Salvation is not through the works of the law. And furthermore, God's work that he's doing is now through Jesus. And can you imagine the room is dead silent when Peter finishes. And then Paul and Barnabas add their testimony. And finally, James, the leader of the early church here, 
gets up. And look at what he says, verses 13, 14, and 15. He says, and after this, they have become silent. James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how at first, um, how at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. You see that? The words of the prophet. James is telling us. He's saying that the Old Testament prophets taught that the Gentiles would share in some of those promises of Israel. Therefore, what Peter says is happening matches what the Old Testament scripture says. And now James throws this important verse. Look at verse, after James quotes an Old Testament text in verses 16 and 17, look at what he says in verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. And this might be one of the most important verses in all of Acts. In context, James is saying that it has always been God's plan to offer salvation for all humanity. The prophets knew it was going to happen. They didn't know how. They didn't know when. But now we know how salvation is going to be offered through all humanity. It's going to be accomplished through this movement that we call the church. The church will become the God-ordained method of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. All, all because Peter listened to the Spirit's direction. And his direction, his testimony, gives clarity to the early church. Now, this is the last time we meet Peter, like I said earlier. His name's, almost, his name's occurred almost 60 times throughout the book of, of Acts here. It's believed that after this, he goes to Antioch later on and ministers there. However, his ministry is not without issues. Galatians chapter 2 tells us that Paul has to rebuke Peter. He's going back to his old ways of ministering to the Jews only. How quickly he forgets that salvation is for the Gentiles, honestly. For the Gentiles, too. And honestly, his actions are, are, are not unique. His actions are norm for many believers in the early church. How quickly Peter forgets what the Spirit has revealed him. How quickly he forgot the bold proclamation before the salvation for How quickly he forgot how the Spirit can use him. And it's a sobering reminder for us all that even the best of the early church needs to daily rely on the Holy Spirit. We've been given an amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will be our helper. And when Jesus left the earth and ascended to heaven, he did not abandon us. He left us with an incredible gift. And sometimes we don't value the Holy Spirit like we ought to value the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's the last person we consult for help in our spiritual struggles when he ought to be the first one. And what is Peter telling us? In his infinite wisdom, the Father knew that it was time for Jesus to go back into heaven. He knew that the temptations and the evil in the world and the evil one were not going to disappear. He knew that we would need somebody to be our full-time on-call, 24 hours a day, seven days a week helper, and so he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's God's gift to help you in our process. Let me explain it this way, and then I'll be finished for tonight. Our salvation has three main parts justification, sanctification, and glorification. When we confess Christ and believe on him, the Bible says we're justified. You know, that's a one-time event. We make a profession of faith. Someday we'll be glorified when we're resurrected unto eternal life. 
But in the in-between part that we're currently living in, that's the sanctification process. It's a process whereby we grow in holiness to become more and more like Jesus and more and more conformed into his image. And the only way that the sanctification process will work is the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. All parts of salvation need divine help to make them work. We need divine help with justification because we can't do that. We need divine help with glorification because we can't do that. And guess what? We need divine help with sanctification. But yet we have the audacity to say we don't need any help with our sanctification, Holy Spirit. We can do that on our own. It doesn't make any sense, does it? You see, the good news for believers today is that they have the same indwelling power that Peter had. The same spirit enables us to transform. It doesn't, it's not going to look exactly like the early church. It's not meant to look that way. We need to simply practice relying on his power every single day. This means praying for it. This means being specific about it. This means when we get up in the morning, say, Lord, I really need the Holy Spirit to ride my back today. I really need him to ride my back today because today is going to be hard. It's a Monday. <laughs> today is going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of temptations to do a lot of things that I shouldn't do. Make the Holy Spirit just ride on my back today. Prayers like that where say, Lord, help the Holy Spirit to show up. May he be there every time I need him. May you allow me to become more sensitive. And guess what? The more you listen, the more you'll hear him. And it makes sense, right? The more you listen, the more you hear him. It's just like someone you love. You know what their voice sounds like. Why? Because you've heard their voice so many times. I can pick the, the, the voice of my kids out of a crowd. I can pick the voice of my wife out of a crowd. I can pick the voice of my parents out of the crowd because I've heard their voice so many times. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit. When he speaks to you, you know exactly He's talking to you. And if he's going to actually speak to you, then we have a responsibility to just do the simple things and just listen. I mean, Peter's testimony gives clarity to the church for the rest of the book of Acts and gives clarity to us today, all because he just did the simple thing of just listening to the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's Peter's advice. Next time we meet, we're going to talk about Barnabas and the advice that Barnabas gives us. Not a major player in the book of Acts, but one that shows up on some significant occasions. And I'll give you a few weeks to search through Acts, and maybe you can come up with what you think his most important piece of advice that he would give us. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks.